All right, so um, I put the. um, I have been putting somebody, a few people have written me. Maybe, presumably, they're not the people who are here. Maybe they are the people who are here. I don't know. I've been putting the recordings of the seminars up on a on a website. I don't know exactly what the address is, but you can get to it if you go to my website and then go to the courses and then go to this course. And then they're they're all there. But last week, I think probably for better rather than for worse, the battery ran out some some portion of the way through. And so some part of it is is up there. But I think the part of it that's up there is, is not the... Insofar as there was a disastrous part, I don't think it's the part that's up there. At least it didn't seem as disastrous when I listened to it as it did when I was giving it. So... Um, so anyhow, if anyone's interested in that or you're, uh, you know people who are, you can tell them how, how to get there. Uh, I was worried a little bit about the fact that we were going to all miss um, the Al Gore talk. And then as they were um, testing out the microphones, I was worried that we weren't going to miss the Al Gore talk. <laughs> so we'll see, how, we'll see how it goes. Um, okay, so we... Um, but we're competing with Al Gore, and Heidegger seems to be doing pretty well. I'm happy to <laughs> happy to hear. Okay, so this is our last. We'll, this will be our last session on the question concerning technology, and the next week, as the new syllabus indicates, we're going to move on to the turning, which is the lecture that comes after the question concerning technology. You, you notice maybe at the beginning of this book of essays, there's a little indication of when these were given as essays, and there, there were four of them uh, given, uh, given as lectures, and there were four of them uh, given together. And we're going to read three of them. The fourth one, uh, The Danger, I don't know if that's ever been published. I've, ne- I've certainly never read it. Anyhow, there's an awful lot about The Danger, and uh, hopefully, I tried to do some of that last time. We'll do a little bit towards the end today, and hopefully... Um, when we read the turning, uh, more will become clear about the danger. But what, what we're going to start off doing today is talking about the four, the four causes, the stuff at the beginning of the question concerning technology that we skipped last time. And remember, we skipped it last time because I said I wanted to have a good, um, a good example to talk about. And we have this great example from Albert Borgmann that uh, Jason was nice enough to put up on the uh, on the course website for us. So we're going to start off talking about that, and then I'm hoping that we'll use that as a way of talking about the relationship between and the difference between two notion, two modes of revealing, poiesis and, and then framing. It's good to have those to contrast with one another. We'll hopefully understand each better by understanding the other, them in relation to the other. And then we'll talk just very briefly about the notion of thing that you get on each of these, uh, in each of these modes of revealing. Gegenstand, at least in one version of Poiesis, you get Gegenstand as the notion of a thing that's literally object, and in, in framing you get Bestand, uh, which is um, 
gets translated in here standing reserve, but we call it resources. I want to talk about those a little bit, and then I want to move on to inframing itself and the, as the essence of technology. So that's the that's the outline. Um, so let's so let's get started on it. So the beginning of the question um, concerning technology has this intriguing, sort of interesting discussion from pages 6 to 12 of uh, the four causes. And it's a very old and traditional way of thinking about causation, going back at least to Aristotle to say that there are, there are four causes. There's the material cause, the formal cause, the final cause, and the efficient cause. And typically, the way we understand them now is that the material cause is the stuff that the thing is made out of. The formal cause, in a normal case, is, it, is the shape of the thing, the shape of the jug. The final cause is something like its purpose, what it's for, carrying water in the case of a jug, say. And the efficient cause is the maker, the person who, who puts it together, the jug maker, say. So that's, that's the traditional way of understanding the four causes in Aristotle, if you take a sort of beginning metaphysics class and they talk about it, or a beginning ancient philosophy class and they talk about it, that's, I think, roughly what you'll get. Matter uh, as the stuff the thing is made out of, form as the shape, uh, final cause as the purpose, and efficient cause as the maker. Uh, and Heidegger thinks that that's... Uh, Heidegger thinks that is the way we now typically explain the doctrine of the four causes in Aristotle. But he thinks it's a great perversion of the original phenomenon to which uh, Aristotle was sensitive. And he thinks that if you understand the phenomenon better, you'll understand something about uh, what it is to have the kind of poetic relationship to things that Heidegger thinks characterized at least the, the ancient Greek understanding of being. So I, I should say poiesis in this essay um, is a term that seems to refer to uh, understandings of being that come before the, cur the current one. I mean, it really looks like uh, in this essay, Heidegger's given a very simplified account of the history of being, according to which there are really two epochs. There's the poetic epoch, uh, and then there's the current epoch. And they're, uh, they're distinct from one another, and he's interested in drawing the distinctions. I think that that's just a radical oversimplification of his own view that he's making so to speak, for pedagogical purposes. It's <laughs> hard to imagine that he's doing anything for pedagogical purposes <laughs> if you read this. this was, and this was a lecture. I understand this was, at least on one of the occasions, uh, I know my former advisor, Bert Dreyfus, was at one of the public occasions where it was given as a lecture. He says there were a thousand people in the audience and they're all sort of standing there listening, you know, rever reverentially and Heidegger sort of intoning in this monodrone. And, uh, and, you know, they all leave saying things like, 
Gestell, what's he talking about? <laughs> Gestell is the word for bookcases in, in, in German, right? So, so, so it's hard to imagine anything was done for pedagogical purposes. But I think, I think it may be that uh, that he really was thinking, oh, I'm going to help these guys out. I'm not going to give them this complicated story about the history of being, according to which you know there's a, a pre-Socratic understanding of being, and then a classical Greek understanding of being, and then an you know early Christian understanding of being a medieval. I'm, I'm just going to say they're all poiesis, and so it's a it's a simplification, and I think it's it's probably good to recognize that it's a simplification. Um, so you might you might be asking yourself things like, how on earth does this characterize the medieval Christian understanding of being, or how on earth does it understand the modern understanding uh, characterize the modern understanding of being as subjects uh, standing out over against objects and so on? I think those are legitimate questions, um, but for the moment, let's try to get the, the phenomenon on the table. So the phenomenon begins with Heidegger saying, uh, look. The, we, we understand the traditional way of, understand, uh, of thinking about the four causes in Aristotle. And you can think of a thing, any old thing, uh, in terms of its four causes. Uh, but unless you really delve deeply into the phenomenology of um, making things and having a particular... Uh, sort of cultural background in which making things involves having a certain kind of relation to them, uh, you won't really understand what Aristotle was up to. Now, now, remember, I think I mentioned last time the Greek word poiesis, which I might as well write on the board. Is... Um, uh, is from the is from the Greek verb poieo, which means to do roughly to do or make, and it's the word from which uh, our word poet uh, comes from, or related. It's related to the word that our word poet comes from, uh, and so the the mode of revealing that Heidegger calls poiesis is a mode of revealing uh, that's related in some way to the idea that things are what you make. Things are, in his terminology in this essay, what you bring forth, what humans bring forth. Where bringing forth, Heidegger's trying to emphasize, and Borgmann, I think, is really helping us to exemplify, uh, where bringing forth is a, is a, involves a certain kind of nurturing relation with the thing. So when you think about the material cause of the thing, you're not just thinking of its matter. I, I mean, you probably all remember this, but the typical thing to say about um, Aristotle's view is that it's a hylomorphic view of uh, what there is. Everything has two parts, the hule, which is the matter, and the morphe, which is the form. Okay, so the, the question is, what do hule and morphe mean here? What do matter and form mean here? Is it just um, inert stuff and the shape that it takes, or is there something more at stake? And Heidegger wants to argue that there's really something more at stake. If you live in a culture where um, you have artisans who master a certain way of life, really, that involves a certain kind of relationship to a certain domain uh, and 
in mastering that way of life, it's possible for them to bring forth handiwork, he calls it, sort of crafts, to bring forth things that are involved with other people's way of life. Then you've got a particular understanding of what a thing is. And it's not just a matter of its having an inert, its being inert matter in a certain kind of shape for a certain kind of function. So we'll just read the Heidegger, the relevant Heidegger passages, and then we'll clarify them with Borgmann. So Heidegger says on page seven, he's talking about the material cost. His example is a silver chalice. Um, Borgmann's example, uh, when he's talking about the wheelwright, there are a lot of examples, but I'll just use the, uh, the farm wagon, which is one of the things that Borgmann has the wheelwright making, or the wheelwright talks about making. So Heidegger says on page 7, towards the bottom, he says, silver, and so the four causes are the ways, all belonging at once to each other, of being responsible for something else. So his idea is that the, um, the word cause, the Greek word cause, the Greek word that gets translated into Latin as causa and gets translated from there into English as cause is a word, is a totally different word, he says. It's the, and I mean, it is a totally different word. It's the word ition, which really does have this notion of responsibility built into it. So the idea that, uh, that Heidegger has is that when, when Aristotle's talking about what we call causes, he's really emphasizing the way in which uh, the matter is responsible for the chalice and the, and the way in which the form of the thing is responsible for the chalice and ultimately the way in which the maker is responsible for the chalice. This notion of responsibility is supposed to play an important role in Heidegger's characterization of the artisan's relationship to the thing that he's making. So we need to spell that out. We need to spell out this notion of responsibility. That gets left out completely of the traditional way of characterizing the four causes. So what does Heidegger say about it? He says, silver is that out of which the silver chalice is made. As this matter, hule, it is co-responsible for the chalice. The chalice is indebted to, that's to say, the chalice owes thanks to the silver for that out of which it consists. That doesn't help me much, I have to, I have to say. I read that and I thought, it sounds like you're just playing with words. It sounds like, you know, I could imagine there's a sense in which, you know, this object is responsible to its material, but it doesn't, it, it didn't really help me. So I was hoping we would find in Borgmann something that gets closer to helping us, and I think we might. So let's think of the case of the farm wagon. In Borgmann, we've got the wheelwright. I, I've never gone and looked up this book by Sturt or whatever his name is, but I, I would love to. I mean, it sounds like a lovely book. It's so written by this 19th century guy who was a wheelwright. And Borgmann says, look, the, the sort of way that technology advances is a little bit hit or miss. And so as it turns out, in the late 19th century, you could still get people who had what amounts to this poetic um, un mode of revealing, this poetic understanding of what it is for anything to be anything at all. And he thinks that Sturt, the wheelwright, uh, not only 
had that understanding, but he write, but he writes really well about it too. So, and he's good at articulating it. So, let's take the example. The matter of the farm wagon is, of course, the wood. Right? That's what it's made out of. That's the hule. But I think that when Sturt describes what it is for the farm wagon to be made out of the wood, he's not all that interested in the fact that there's this inert material that you can shape, you know, you can give some shape to. He says, in fact, that the wood is given over to the farm wagon in the sense that it opens up or discloses qualities that are for the wagon that otherwise wouldn't be known. So let's read, let's read what he says at the bottom of 44. Um, uh, the, the very bottom, two lines from the bottom, Borgman writes, if the wheelwright, Sturt says elsewhere, was really master of his timber, if he knew what he had already gotten stock, and also what was likely to be wanted in years to come, he kept a watch always for timber with special curve, suitable for hames or shaft braces or wagon heads or hounds or tailboard rails or whatever else the tree shape might suggest. Such respectful, end quote, such respectful working with nature is not just as close to nature as conservation. It's not just a matter of sort of being an ecological conservator. It opens up dimensions that remain otherwise closed. Quoting now from Sturt, under the plane, that's the thing that you use to you know, straighten something out, it is little used now, Sturt says, or under the axe, if it is all but obsolete, timber disclosed qualities hardly to be found elsewhere. And in another, otherwise. And elsewhere he says, with the wedges cleaving down between the clinging fibers, as he let out the wood scent, listening to the tearing, splitting sounds, the workman found his way into a part of our environment, felt the laws of woodland vitality not otherwise visited or suspected. So the idea is something like, you don't just get wood out of a stockpile where every bit of wood is equivalent to every other bit of wood. Part of what you do as a master of timber, which is what the wheelwright is, is you're constantly on the lookout for the kinds of timber that will allow to be disclosed a certain kind of tailboard, a certain kind of shaft brace, a certain, a certain kind of, and so on. So that the wood itself suggests the possibility of making a certain kind of wagon in a certain kind of way. The wood itself discloses for the master, not for everyone, but for the person who's ready to understand it. The wood itself discloses the possibility of a certain kind of, of a certain kind of equipment, of a certain kind of farm wagon. All right. So that's one sense. Yeah. yeah you okay. So that's that's a sense in which. The farm wagon is indebted to the wood. The wood is responsible for the farm wagon. The wood isn't just any old bit of thing that you can pull off the stockpile. It itself suggests the wagon. And so is responsible for the wagon, and the wagon is indebted to it. So the material, the notion of material cause here really involves, on Borgmann and Heidegger's account, not just a notion of, of inert matter that makes up 
the thing. But a notion that the, the matter that makes up the thing is in some way or another suggestive of it and responsible for it and the thing is indebted to it. That's one, that's one thing. Okay, that's the material cause. The f but we can go do it for all four of the causes. I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think the Borgman is really provocative. So what does Heidegger say about the formal cause? The formal cause of the silver chalice or the formal cause of the farm wagon, traditionally we understand it just to be the shape of the thing, a, ge a geometrical quality that it's got, that any, other, um, you know, that any other object might have made out of any other material. Heidegger says, following on from where we stopped at the uh, bottom of page 7, but the sacrificial vessel is indebted not only to the silver, that was the material cause, as a chalice, that which is indebted to the silver appears in the aspect of a chalice and not in that of a brooch or a ring. So far that sounds just like it's got a different shape, right? It's, got a, it's not the shape of a ring, it's the shape of a chalice. Not the shape of a brooch, but the shape of a chalice. Thus the sacrificial vessel is at the same time indebted to the aspect, the eidos, this is the Greek word that you know, Plato uses that gets translated idea, of chaliceness. Both the silver into which the aspect is admitted as chalice and the aspect in which the silver appears are in their respective ways co-responsible for the sacrificial vessel. So you could misread this as saying that there's some uh, platonic ideal of the form of a chalice and that the craftsman, when he's creating the chalice, has got that ideal in mind and is heading for it. If you understood it that way, it would still have this, in a certain way, notion of responsibility. It would be the idea that there's something outside of you that's a measure against which you're, you're trying, a standard against which you're trying to measure the chalice that you're creating as a, as a craftsman. But I think it's more than that. Let's look at what... Let's look at what Borgmann says. Borg, Borgmann's muse, Sturt. So Borgmann says on 45... Um, okay, well, so no, wait, I need to try to say what, what I think Borgmann's going to say. So the formal cause of the farm wagon is its shape, of, in some sense. That's the morphe. Um, but I think Borgmann and Heidegger are going to try to say that the shape isn't just a geometrical property of the thing, a geometrical property of the chalice or a geometrical property of the wagon. Rather, it's the aspect of the wagon that owes its existence to the intimate and peculiar needs of the neighborhood. So it's very local. It's very contextually determined. The shape that the thing takes is the shape that it has to take as a result of the, th the job that it's going to do in the context in which it's going to do it. So let's read what Borgmott says. My nose is... Okay. But again, the intimacy of the wheelwright with nature did not stop with the materials, but embraced his entire world by way of the needs of his customers. Sturt put it this way. And so we got curiously intimate with the peculiar needs of the neighborhood in farm wagon or dung cart, barley roller, plow, water barrel, or whatnot. The dimensions we chose, that's the shape that the thing takes, right? The dimensions we chose, the curves we followed, and almost every piece of timber was curved, were imposed upon us 
by the nature of the soil in this or that farm, the gradient of this or that hill, the temper of this or that customer, or his choice, perhaps, in horse flesh. Okay. So the form of the thing isn't just a geometrical property of it. The form that it takes is indebted to... the. Uh, so, Sorry, the farm wagon is indebted in its formal properties to the, all these other things outside of it, the nature of the soil, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the dimensions were imposed upon us by the nature of the soil uh, in this or that farm, the gradient of this or that hill, the temper of the customer, and so on and so forth. This isn't just a geometrical feature of the thing. It's a feature that's imposed from without and to which the master wheelwright is responsive in, um, in nurturing forth and bringing forth this farm wagon for this very particular purpose in this very particular context. Yeah? That would just be the final, just many final causes, though. Of well, okay, we need to do the final cause next. Yeah, that's right. So there's a sense in which all these things, one of Heidegger's points is that there's a sense in which you can't properly distinguish all of these things. They're, they're really all aspects of the same thing. Uh, so it's true there's a, a reference to final cause there, but I want to identify the final cause with something else. Um, Okay, so let's call that the formal cause. It's the shape. The shape is determined down to, you know, where does it say the thing about a sixteenth of an inch? Oh, yeah, that's a little bit further down. The shape is determined by all of these external demands. All of these external demands, demands put on it uh, on the wheelwright by nature and by the purpose and the, by the particular needs and desires of the customer uh, that he's working for. Okay. So, but it, it's the but it's the but it's the shape that's determined by all those things. So the point is, the shape isn't just a geometrical property of the thing; it's a geometrical property that itself is um, responsive to other demands in the situation. And it wouldn't be the the shape it was were it not for those demands. That's okay. So now, so now let's talk about the final cause. I think the final cause is an interesting one too. Here's what Heidegger says about the final cause. If you turn over on page 8, Heidegger says, But there remains yet a third that is above all responsible for the sacrificial uh, vessel. A third cause, he means. It is that which in advance confines the chalice within the realm of consecration and bestowal. Through this, uh, the chalice is circumscribed as sacrificial vessel. Circumscribing gives bounds to the thing. With the bounds, the thing does not stop. Rather, from out of them, it begins to be what, after production, it will be. That which, that which gives bounds, that which completes, in this sense, is called the Greek telos, the, pur the purpose, we, we say, uh, or the end, which is all too often translated as aim or purpose, and so misinterpreted, right? The telos is responsible for what as matter and for what as form or aspect are together co-responsible for the sacrificial vessel. Okay, so the idea is that, the idea here is partly just that it wouldn't take the form that it does and it wouldn't be made of the material that it is were it not that it was intended to be a sacrificial vessel consecrated in a certain way for a certain use. So... That, and that sounds familiar to us. Uh, it takes the shape that it does because of the purpose it's got. But I think Borgman is good about 
um, uh, encouraging us to resist a particular reading of the notion of final cause. So we're, we're inclined to say that the final clause of the, wa- of the farm wagon, say, is its purpose. In the case of the farm wagon, the purpose may be that it's for transporting goods. Um, but, Borgman wants to say, this isn't, and, and, this is, and this is not a mistake you would make with the silver chalice. It's one of the, probably the reason that Heidegger picks the silver chalice. The silver chalice is consecrated to its end. Nothing else could serve the end of the silver chalice once it's consecrated because it's made in the, in the appropriate way with the appropriate end in mind and sort of consecrated in the appropriate way and so that you can use it for the, for the holy sort of things that you want to use it for. But the farm wagon, it's not so obvious I mean, why couldn't just any old means of transportation, uh, any old means of transporting goods, serve the same end? And Borgman, I think, is interesting here. He says, look, if we're going to call the final cause of the farm wagon its purpose, the purpose of transporting goods, then it's not a purpose in the sense of what he calls a commodity It's not a purpose in the sense of a mere end unencumbered by means. I think that's a quote from Borgmann. So in particular, Borgmann will say, the purpose of the farm wagon is not distinguishable from the very particular form and the very particular matter that make it up. So it's indebted to them for its existence and they're responsible for it in the sense that no other form or material could do the job in the way that the farm wagon, as created by the wheelwright in these very particular circumstances, does. So we're supposed to contrast this uh, in, in Borgmann's work with the technological device, what he calls a device, in which the machinery can change radically and the function remain the same. So Borgmann is making this distinction uh, on 43. At the bottom of 43, he says, the distinction in the device between its machinery and its function is a specific instance of the means-ends distinction. And the idea is that in uh, a farm wagon brought forth in a nurturing way by a master wheelwright for a particular customer in a particular place uh, to, uh, for particular kinds of, for a particular particular use doesn't admit of this kind of means and distinction. It doesn't admit of the distinction between the machinery and its function. So in agreement with the general distinction between means and end, the machinery for a technological device, the machinery or the means, is subservient to and validated by the function or the end. The technological distinction of means and ends differs from the general notion in two respects. In the general case, it's very questionable how clearly and radically means and ends can be distinguished without doing violence to the phenomena. But in the case of the technological device, the machinery can be changed radically without threat to the identity and familiarity of the function of the device. That's just what you can't do with the farm wagon as created in this nurturing way by the, by the wheelwright. 
So he says, look what you can do with a technological device. No one is confused when one is invited to replace one's watch, powered by a spring, regulated by a balance wheel, displaying time with a dial and pointers, with a watch that is powered electronically, is regulated by a quartz crystal, and displays time digitally. They, they serve the same function. They perform the very, they're for the very same end. So who cares what the machinery is? As long as the function is performed and performed well, then you've got, you've got the essence of the device. The device is characterized essentially by its end, by its function, by its purpose, and that's completely distinguishable from the material that, that makes it and from the, from the form that that material go, uh, is, is put into. That's exactly what you can't do, he's going to say, with the farm wagon. This concomitance of radical variability of means and relative stability of ends is the first distinguishing feature. Uh, the second, closely tied to the first, is the concealment and unfamiliarity of the means and the simultaneous prominence and availability of the ends. This goes on, he goes on to say, look, with technological devices, since the Diruption. Since the since the sort of um, distinction between means and ends is so radical, really the only thing that matters is the end, the the function that the thing performs. And so there's almost no need or desire on the on the uh, from the point of view of the person using the thing to understand the means by which it performs the function. And as a result, these, these means become more and more unfamiliar uh, in technological devices. And when they become more and more unfamiliar, he says, the sense that you ought to have the relationship to the thing of keeping it working is a sense that you lose completely, right? Because after all, you have no idea how it works. The only thing that matters is that it works. <laughs> and so you, you fall, with technological devices, you fall into this pattern. I imagine you're all familiar with it. If it breaks, you throw it out and get another, right? And, and furthermore, we, um, you know, we have lots and lots of things in, in the current technological age that are made just to that end just to the end of being disposable. The one-use, the one-time-use thing, uh, Borgman thinks, is the kind of thing you couldn't have but in the technological age because the reason you've got it is that we're so focused on the ends and on the way in which the end is divorceable from the means. Okay, contrast that, he says, uh, with, um, with the farm wagon as made... Uh, by a, a particular kind of material that itself suggests the very wagon that the master craftsman is going to nurture forth from it and suggests it in the context of the, of the particular needs and desires of the soil, of the farm, of the particular customer, and so on and so forth, uh, and, the and the skills of the master. Uh, contrast the, the disposability of the means uh, in the technological case with what you've got in the, in the poietic case. So here's where he's talking about the poietic case. Again, on 45 now, he says similarly in another place, the field, the farmyard, the roads and hills, the stress of weather, the strength and shape of horses, the lifting power of men, all were factors which had determined in the old villages how the farm tackle must be made 
of what timber and shape and of what dimensions, often to the 16th of an inch. So this is the idea that, again, that the final cause is totally tied up with the material cause and with the formal cause. What shape the thing is going to take is determined completely by the end that it's, got, that it's, um, that it's for in this very, very local uh, and particular way, and by the very particular tree that you're going to make the thing from. So you just can't divorce the end from the material and from, and from the form in the way that in the technological age we're inclined to. Okay. So that, so the final cause is already tied, inextricably tied up with the material and, uh, and the formal cause. And, um, and so we get finally to the efficient cause. So we've got the efficient cause. The efficient cause we think of as the producer, the maker. That's the craftsman, we call them. Right? That's the person, you know, maybe the, you know, the person in the, at this point, the, um, you know, the person in the, in the factory, say, or the, at this point, you know, the robot in the factory. Uh, so what's Heidegger, what are Heidegger and Borgmann uh, going to say about, about the efficient cause? Well, so the efficient cause, of course, is, is, the, is the wheelwright, in this case, or the, 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 the silversmith in the case of the silver chalice. Um, but now it should be clear that the wheelwright insofar, or the, or the silversmith, insofar as he or she is, a, is a, an efficient cause of the thing that's being made, isn't just the producer of it, isn't just the maker of it. He's rather the master who has affection and reverence for the land and the materials out of which he's crafting the thing, who respectfully works with nature to allow it to reveal things that otherwise would be hidden. He is the nurturer who brings forth out of nature a particular thing that's allowed to be brought forth by nature, right? by the very curve of the tree. Okay. And Heidegger's actually pretty good on this. And in particular, the, the, efficient, the efficient cause is the one who brings together the other three causes. Heidegger says, the, um, where did I want to start? Oh, finally, on page eight again, there's a fourth participant in the responsibility for the finished sacrificial vessels lying before us ready for use, i.e. the silversmith. But not at all because he, in working, brings about the finished sacrificial chalice as if it were the effect of a making. The silversmith is not a causa efficiens. He's not a, an efficient cause in the way that we traditionally understand what it is to be an efficient cause. The Aristotelian doctrine, if you understand it properly, he says, neither knows the cause that is named by this term, by this horrible Latin term. Remember, Latin is always bad for Heidegger. Uh, uh, neither knows the cause that is named by this term, nor uses a Greek word that would correspond to it. The silversmith, rather, if we understand what he's really up to, considers carefully and gathers together the three aforementioned ways of being responsible and indebted. To consider carefully, well, so on and so forth, the silversmith is co-responsible as that from whence the sacrificial vessels bringing forth and resting in itself take and retain their first departure. Okay, so the silversmith is, is not just a producer, certainly not just an automated producer of the sort that we get in a factory. The silversmith 
or, or the wheelwright has a whole way of life that as a master of that way of life allows him to be sensitive to what's what one can bring forth from the land in a nurturing way to a very particular end that can allow you uh, that can allow you to to produce to nurture forth uh, something for a very particular person. So um, Borgmann says on 44, uh, about two thirds of the way down, he says, since the web of relations is so tight and manifold, it's difficult to present present it in, uh, in an abstract and summary way, but let us begin with those aspects in which the relations, uh, relation of humans to nature is singled out. This is, I mean, it's humans to nature. It's not automated um, sort of maker to stockpile of material. It's humans to nature that you get in this, in this notion of a, a, of a master craftsman. Um, the experience of cultivating the land is still alive at this time in England, and Sturt speaks repeatedly of the age-old effort of colonizing England. But colonizing doesn't mean anything bad like you, you might think it does. He doesn't understand colonizing as the domination of nature, that's to say as conquering and subduing, but as an adaptation of people to the land, a mutual nurturing and bringing forth, so that you understand yourself differently by understanding what's suggested by the curve of the tree as something that could be brought forth uh, in, in a particular context for a particular person. Uh, and, he, and he paraphrases it as the age-long effort of Englishmen to get themselves close and ever closer into England. As people adjust to the land, the land discloses itself to the people. There is a close relationship between the tree-clad countryside and the English who dwelt there. They this nurturing notion brings forth, I mean, there's, they recognize that there's a back and forth. It's part of what it is to be a master craftsman in this context. Yeah, yeah. So, um, think about the, the skyscraper, which is the, the very technological yeah. object, right? Uh, you build them everywhere, and they look all sort of the same. Um, yeah. But like, there are, say, I don't know exactly, like, chemists or physicists who study the properties of steel and by understanding the properties of steel, know which steel is best to build a building with. And yes. The same, you know, all the inspectors are going to live around New York and see one concrete. Now, like, like, people do attend to the materials, and maybe different people, and maybe there's someone who unifies all this. Maybe maybe the arch architect would be sort of come closer to approximating. Yeah, yeah. But um, it still seems that some of the things that are being described there are being done at a technological age. Yeah, in a very, very distant way. So that's right. What you're looking to is the underlying physical properties of the thing, uh, which we now understand as what it is that characterizes the thing. But notice the difference between the underlying physical properties of the thing, uh, which ultimately characterize anything, right? I mean, so the, the, what the essence of... Um, steel is characterizable in terms that are identical to the terms that you can use to characterize the essence of silver. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, you know, the atomic structure of the thing is, you know, ultimately a sort of universal way that we can characterize what the thing is essentially. Right. And ultimately, there won't be. Ultimately, if Heidegger's right that in the technological age we understand everything as resources that are so flexible in the extreme, that you can substitute almost any one for almost any other, 
uh, it'll turn out that none of these things has in, has real intrinsic properties. And now I can see you're you're saying you're thinking, but of course steel is better than silver if you want to build a skyscraper. Or it's got wax, yeah, or, yeah or wax or whatever, right? It's got better properties. And I think the idea is going to be something like um, ultimately uh, what we're going to discover is that we're challenged forth to create something that satisfies this need, you know, even better than anything else, right? So we're not, so ultimately we're going to, on the, in Heidegger's terminology, we're going to understand ourselves as Lord of the earth. We're going to understand the earth as giving us nothing that in virtue of its intrinsic properties discloses something for us. Rather, we're going to understand ourselves completely as the, um, the individuals that are capable of creating whatever it is that's um, the best thing for a particular end. Yeah, so that so, gives so us a very different... The, the end in the technological age is what determines the making of something. Yeah. And then in, say, the poetic age or ages, um, the, the like, materials out of which something is made that it be made. Yeah. Well, de determine is, to, is strong, but direct or something. There, there's a there's a back and forth that's really that Heidegger thinks is really crucial in the poetic age that we're that we're lacking, and we can lack it. We'll, I want to get to this later, but I think we can lack it in one of two ways. Either we can come to understand ourselves as completely dominating everything, as Lord of the Earth, as he says, I think on twenty seven or something, or and it's the, it's the other option, we can understand ourselves as resources, which is to say we can understand ourselves as essentially nothing different from anything else that there is out there, as merely a resource to be ordered and, uh, and, and structured in, in, in a certain way. And, and so either we're in complete control or we're completely controlled, and there's not this give and take of the sort that you find between the master craftsmen and the materials that they work with. Now, is this why technologically hide the fact that it's Ah, uh, yeah, I think it's closely related to that. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think it's closely related to that. Well, I want to get to that in slightly more detail at the end, but yeah, yeah, that's exactly the issue. Um, let me let me just read the rest of this um, bit uh, from, from Borgman, because this is all about uh, the what it is to be the master craftsman. Uh, not just the efficient cause, not just the maker of the thing, but someone who... Um, who adapts himself to the land, uh, who gets close and ever closer into England, and as people adjust to the land, the land discloses itself to the people. It's a matter, it discloses itself to you only if you adapt to it. That's the, that's the give and take. And adapting to it is a matter of, um, uh, Borgman doesn't talk much about this, but in, in the tradition of the... Um, of the master craftsman, uh, the, the master apprentice tradition, what it is to adapt yourself to the land is under the guidance of a master as an apprentice to sort of craft yourself, to learn to craft yourself so that as an apprentice, there's always the sense that you're developing yourself as a receptive vehicle and uh, a constructive vehicle as you're developing your character, you're developing your sensitivity to nature, you're developing your sensitivity to others in the social environment, you're developing, certainly you're developing skills, that's true, but that's not all. I mean, that we think of that as what's left. 
you know, a craftsman has a certain kind of skill, and if you practice long enough, you get it. But in the mass, in the tradition of apprentices, and, and uh, in the real tradescraft, in the tradition, the relation between master and apprentice wasn't just a, a relation in which you know the master taught some skills to the apprentice. The master taught a whole mode of existence to the apprentice, the, and the apprentice, insofar as they were a good apprentice. The apprentice was able to adapt themselves to that, themselves to that way of life, and uh, so it's this mutual adaptation that's really crucial for Heidegger. So as people adjust to the land, the land discloses itself to the people. There's a close relationship between the tree lad countryside and the English who dwelt there. Sturt speaks of the affection and the reverence bred of this. You can't have affection and reverence for a stockpile of material. It just doesn't work, right? It's a stock. Insofar as it's a stockpile of material, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't demand that kind of uh, that kind of relationship to it. But the um, the world that the the master wheelwright lives in is a world in which uh, the in which the the woodlands demands this affection and reverence. But it's impossible to abstract a relationship in this pre-technological setting that obtains merely between human beings and nature. What takes the wheelwright into sunny woodland solitudes, into winter woods or along leafless hedgerows, and across wet water meadows in February is the search for timber. It's not just that you've got a relation to this material. You're searching for timber, and you're searching for it in a particular social context because of the particular needs of the people in your neighborhood, in your village, and the particular slope of the hill in their farm. And the, all these particularities are absolutely essential. But timber was so timber was far from being a prey, a helpless victim to a machine. They, they, they weren't searching for timber in the sense that um, you know that leads to deforestation, Sturt says and continues, rather it would lend its subtle virtues to the man who knew how to humor it. With him, as with an understanding friend, the timber would cooperate. This is a relation not of domination, but of mastery. That's, the, that's what you're trying to develop in the master-apprentice relationship, this notion of mastery, which is not domination. You don't become lord of the earth. You don't relate to the timber just in the, in the sense of being able to cut it down. Uh, there's another thing that I hadn't thought I would read, but I forget, so I'm not sure I'll be able to find it, where he talks about how now... Uh, let me just see if I can find it. Um, when, you ex when you understand the the trees as uh, commodities, then you cut them down. It doesn't matter when you cut them down. You cut them down in the wrong season. It doesn't matter how you cut them down because the machine can just overpower it. It doesn't, uh, none of these things, none of the sensitivities to the particularities of what's, what, your, what the wood allows you to bring forth from it is at all, re is at all relevant. Okay. So, okay. That's, what I have to say about the about the four causes, I think. I mean, it's helpful to me. The, the reading the Borgman, I think, is really really helpful because uh, it gives us a, a good sense of what Heidegger's up to in a way that you might not be able to have that sense if you just read the passages on the on the on the silver chalice. Let me let me pause for a moment. I'm about halfway through the time and a quarter of the way through the notes, but. 
but that's okay. I, I've been talking a lot, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, so let's pause for a moment. There's a good place to pause, and let me just see if there's anything, uh, and anything that anyone wants to bring up at this point about the four causes. Does it help a little? Yeah. One thing you talked about in the Bible, which I thought was interesting, was the way that the the object, like the wagon, can be sort of like world disclosing, like it's almost like a work of art because it, it crystallizes the all the way that people interact with it and their place in the society and all that stuff. Yeah, it's not a work of art. It's what we'll see later as a thing. Uh, but it's a thing thinging. It's like the shoes uh, in, in the Van Gogh painting for the, um, you know, for the, um, for the peasant woman. It's, uh, it, but it, I, th I think if it works properly, it can, it can be a thing. But the better example that Borgman gives is the hearth or the stove or the fireplace. Uh, he says, um, he says, now that we've got warmth as a commodity, uh, the f it seems to come from nowhere. It doesn't locate us either spatially or temporally. It's not when, when, the when you've got central heating, the house is exactly the same temperature in, in all of its parts, and there's no center of the home from which the warmth emanates. There's no time at which the warmth emanates. It's not like, you know, a cold hearth means morning and a warm hearth means the beginning of the day and those kinds of things. So it, it no long, once the warmth is a commodity, it evens out uh, um, our sense of space and our sense of time in a way that wasn't the case when we, when we used the fireplace as, a, uh, as the focus of the home. Uh, I mean, and there, there's, a, there's a reason uh, that in the ancient Greek culture, for instance, uh, when a stranger, that there's a very strong tradition that when a stranger comes into a new home, if he's standing at the hearth, then you just aren't allowed to, you just aren't allowed to, you have to protect him. That's what, that's what happens. And Zeus was the god who was in charge of protecting strangers who visited home to home. And when they stood at the focal point of the home, when they stood at the hearth, at the absolute center of it, that made everything go and made everything understandable, uh, you, it was your responsibility to, to protect them. I think that we don't have that. We don't have any, we, you know, we have hospitality or something like that, you know, which is a, but we don't, we don't have it focused in the way that they had it focused partly because I think we don't have this different, this way of differentiating space and time in terms of the, in terms of the meaning of it uh, as related to the, to the hearth. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is important and interesting. Now you, you may wonder um, what we're supposed to do. I mean, you, you may be thinking, uh, okay, uh, so I, now I, um, you know, get a house with a fireplace, or, you know, I mean, but so what exactly are we supposed to take from this? And I think that's a good question. Uh, um, it's not obvious by the end of this, uh, by the end of this essay, what we're supposed to do with it. Although, it is clear that Heidegger thinks that, um, just railing against technology or even attempting in some way, if at all possible, to return to an earlier mode of, mode of revealing and, or, or 
to be sad that it's gone. None of those things. Not, nostalgia isn't the right response. Uh, anger and cursing the technology as if it were the devil isn't the right response. Uh, trying to romantically to return to the past isn't the right response. So what is the right response? We, we need to deal with that. Uh, and Heidegger is thinking about dealing with it uh, in this essay. And uh, hopefully it'll become clearer as the semester goes on what he thinks we should do with it. Yeah, Max. I just want to say that I agree that nostalgia is I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia in his evocation of the pastoral journey. Well, there is. That's right. I mean, he flirts with it. Uh, he, he does flirt with it. Uh, and he's constantly trying to distinguish himself from the kind of romanticization of nature that, you know, you, you might have found in whatever, you know, 18th century Germany or something like that. He's, try, he's trying to distinguish himself from that movement. It's easy to see why, reading him sometimes, you might think that he's for that. And I think part of the issue is that he's, not, he's just not clear what the way forward is. When he starts to become clearer, um, there are places where he says, where he says look, um, we're, the point at history, the point that we're at in history is a very special point because the technological age is a very special age. And we can understand to some extent what's, what's special about it by, by thinking about this essay. But what it requires, he'll say, uh, I think when he's, when he's being clearest, what it requires is not going back to any previous age in, in history, but it requires a new beginning. And, and there was, he says, in the history of the West, a first beginning, that was uh, in the pre-Socratics. Uh, first, the first beginning came about because the pre-Socratics had the mood of wonder and they began metaphysics. And now uh, we've finally recognized what was wrong with metaphysics. Among other things, it's, uh, among other things it failed to make the ontological difference, failed to understand the ontological difference, so it always thought of being as a particular being. We are now... The, the pre-Socratics were driven to the mood of wonder as a result of their fascination with things, whooshing up and so on. That's what began metaphysics. We're now ready for a new beginning. And it's not going to be like any of the other beginnings because we're not just going to initiate a new understanding of what things are by um, understanding them as intelligible in terms of their relation to some new kind of thing. We're going to understand what being is, and we're going to understand that it's not a being, it's something else, and the something else is the background practices. But if you understand what the background practices are, and you understand our relation to them properly, you'll recognize that there's an essential give and take, that it's part of the essence of human beings, I was going to read this, that we are related to a mode of revealing. I was gonna, maybe I'll just find that passage because it comes in one sentence and um, uh, yeah, 26. It goes by very quickly. It wasn't until about the fifth time I read it this afternoon that I, I saw it. So on page 26 um, in the first full paragraph at the end 
Uh, just the last sentence of that paragraph, I'll read the whole thing. I, I only need the last few words, but I'll read the whole thing. Through this, other, uh, through this, the other possibility is blocked. Never mind what the other possibility... I mean, he's going to tell us what the other possibility is. That man might be admitted more and sooner and ever more primally to the essence of that which is unconcealed and its unconcealment in order that he might experience as his essence, that's to say our essence, what's our essence? are needed belonging to revealing. Okay, that's our essence. We have this necessary belonging to revealing. Revealing is what the background practices do. We have this necessary relation to the background practices. That's the essential feature of us. And what's the relation? Well, the, re the relation is something like we instantiate the background practices. We uh, can, in some instances and in some ways, change the background practices. Uh, if, even if we're not changing the background practices, we need to nurture them and safeguard them and preserve them and recognize them as practices that are not uh, due to our domination or our will, but are in some sense outside of us. We instantiate, this is a weird thing, we instantiate them, all of us together, but they don't sit inside any one of us. So in an important sense, they're outside of each and every one of each and every one of us. They're given to us, the background practices. We're responsive to them. We're sensitive to them. We're directed by them. Uh, and in a certain sense, it's up to us to recognize that they're outside of us and that they need to be preserved and that they can uh, be changed. So that's our ascent, that's the essence of us and the essence of being, this essential back and forth relation, I think it's why he's interested in, in poiesis, where there's a different kind of back and forth relation, not to being, but to nature, right? So in the poetic relation, there's a back and forth relation between who the craftsman is and how they understand themselves, how they adapt themselves to nature, and how nature, once you've adapted yourself to it, suggests ways of its developing itself into things that you in turn can, can uh, skillfully bring, bring forth. Right? So this back and forth relation between the craftsman and nature mirrors in a certain way the back and forth relation that he thinks exists between us, Dasein, and the background practices, being. Right? There's this there's this back and forth relationship and we what's special about the technological age is we've got it all messed up. We've got only two options. Either it's all us, we're Lord of the Earth, or uh, it's all it's all stuff. We're we're just resources, and there's nothing nothing outside of the resources, right? So it's either complete will and domination, or it's complete dominated stuff. There's there's just no back and forth whatsoever, and that's what's special about it. And so he'll think the new beginning is the is when when we come to be sensitive to the possibility that. Um, our essence is characterizable in terms of the relation uh, and belonging to it that we um, have to to being to modes of revealing. Is, yeah. Is um so when we first recognize the background practices are sort of related to but separate from us. Yeah. Um. So you know that's not that's not a freedom in terms of a willing. It's kind of. But but then after that. When we recognize also that we can change 
the background practices like in some way. Is, can we affect that change by a willing? No. Uh, n no more than the craftsman can affect the change of the, of the material by a dom dominating willing. Right? It's always going to be a responsive. It's always going to involve a certain kind of responsiveness. I, in fact, I hadn't thought about it until this this you know exchange. But I, I do think it's clearer to me now why he's got po you know the poetic mode of understanding as the contrast class here. It's because he thinks there's something important and interesting about it that we need to learn from, and it's not. And it's precisely not that we need to have the relationship to nature that they had in the, when, in the poetic epochs. It's that we need to have the understanding to being that they had in the poetic epochs to, to nature. Um, and that's always going to involve um, also a relation to social context in both cases. Yeah, so, so, it's, um, so I think that's really important. It's not going to be a domination thing. Uh, if when you understand um, that you've got a free relationship, we talked a lot of, last time about the free relationship, we'll talk a little bit more about it this time. When you understand that you've got a free relationship to being, and in particular when you understand that you've got a free relationship to the technological mode of being, uh, mode of understanding, uh, then, or understanding of being, then when you understand that, you will understand that you can listen to and hear the claims that the understanding of being puts upon you. And you can respond to them, be responsive to them, nurture them, and bring out new ways of, of, um, of understanding, new modes of revealing by means of it. But it, it's going to, I do think, oh, it's so good that this is coming up. I think, I mean, the analogy is more and more clear. It's going to take a certain kind of master who has developed an understanding of being uh, in the way that the master craftsman has developed an understanding of a particular domain in nature. It's going to take um, a, uh, that master having a certain kind of sensitivity and receptivity to what's given to them uh, from without by, in this case, the background practices. Uh, uh, and it's going to take a sensitivity to what those background practices can, as he says about the, the craftsman, or as, as sorry, Borgman says about the craftsman, what the, what, but now we'll say it about background practices, what, what um, the, this sensitivity to the background practices will open up dimensions that remain otherwise closed, right? Uh, Borgman or Sturt was saying that about the tree, and the particular curve of the tree and the way it suggests a particular part of the you know part of the wagon for so and so on this particular landscape but heidegger can say that about uh, about being right the but the master uh, thinker or the master artist or the master poet uh, can listen to and hear the claims that the background practices make upon them, and in listening appropriately, it, um, new new possibilities will be opened up for them. I think that must be what uh, what he's up to, and why he think why the poetic. This is so exciting. I had never understood this, uh, so I'll just say it out loud again. This must be what he's up to, and it must be why the poetic mode of revealing is the proper contrast class in this case, because it's got something with respect to nature. 
that, uh, and, and society, that Heidegger thinks we need to develop with respect to being and, and social practices. Wow, terrific, good. A any other revelatory questions? This is, <laughs> this is great, yeah, that's terrific. So we're ditching out the pedagogical hypothesis. What's, what's the pedagogical hypothesis? Well, he, did, he uses the poetic mode as a contrast yeah. to the pedagogical one because... Because it was just easier for his students. Yeah, <laughs> for the thousand people standing in the, you know, cold, in the, in the Freiburg cold or Munich cold or something, right? Like poor Al Gore. Yeah, we haven't heard Al. That's for the best, I suppose. Um, <laughs> he would be pleased, though, I think. Don't <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess so. I mean, I get. I mean, so there's still this. There's still this other other issue. I mean, I don't. He is. He's doing some kind of simplifying here because um, he is presenting it as if there are only two modes of revealing in the history of the West: the poetic one and the contemporary technological one. And I think that is a simplification that um, you know, he's, that's certainly a simplification that he's making here. Um, but, uh, right, I'm now more inclined to think that the reason he's making that simplification is because it's the relevant mode of revealing for making the point about, uh, about, uh, the, what, about the possible way forward from the technological age that he wants to make. It's the relevant epoch. Um, it's still a simplification. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a simplification. I mean, it's, well, let me just say this, and then I'll, it, it's, it is possible. I don't quite understand how this would work. It is possible that um, each of the different epochs in the history of the West, except for the technological one, um, maintains a notion of poiesis, but just manifests it differently. So it, it is, po I mean, there have been craftsmen you know, there were craftsmen in the Middle Ages. Now they were up to something else. They understood their practices in a different way, but they didn't misunderstand the four causes in the way that we do. And so it may well be that, um, that throughout all of those ages you get some version of the poetic mode of revealing. Yeah, sorry. So just in the analogy that you just tried to articulate, um, the poetic epochs are poetic epochs or nature as, so we need to be to be. That's it, yeah. And, and how, how are you understanding nature in that? Well, in this context, I'm understanding it the way that Borgmans Woodwright understands it. So it's what you have affection for and reverence for. It's the land that's, um, uh, that is England in this case. I mean, it's not resources at all, right? It, it's, uh, um, it's the way... Um, uh, it, it's, uh, let's see, the sunny woodland solitudes, the winter woods or leafless hedgerows, the, and so on and so forth. So nature just was a very traditional sense. Well, I, yeah, when nature, tradition, I usually use traditional for a bad thing. Okay. Na nature construed in this sort of um, uh, poetic sense, okay. yeah. Um, uh, so, with regard to the question of how, how this relates to the technological age, um, sort of concealing that it is a review ceiling that isn't revealing. Yeah. Um, is it that in every other age, and he calls all those ages the poetic ages, right? Um, they were listening to something. Um, and maybe the way they listened to it was different, uh, sort of the, the strains they followed were different, but in our age we're not listening to anything. Or we think we aren't listening to anything. We're actually maybe listening to our like, 
desires or something or our ends. We, yeah. Uh, I think the way to say it is we're responding to something without listening to or hearing it. Okay. So, and what we're responding to is the challenging forth of enframing. So we're responding to this challenge to dominate the earth and to order it and uh, and to order its resources, but we don't hear that challenge as a challenge. And maybe, so now maybe this is I don't know exactly what order to do all this in, but I think um, but that but so I had intended to say that later, since I'm since my notes are sort of a mess. I don't know why. Well, I can find that. Let's see. But, uh, yes, I mean, I think, well, why don't we go to it? No, why don't we not go to it? Not quite yet. But, but I'll say this much. I'll say, um, yes, I think that uh, you're right that he thinks that what's wrong with the technological age is that nobody's listening to or hearing anything, even though we're responding to this challenge that's given to us from outside. We don't experience it as a challenge it, uh, given to or a claim upon us we, it just seems as though that's the way things are. And that's, um, so now that's, I, I'll just say this because I have to say it over and over and over again in order for it to make any sense to me or anyone else. So the, the, that's both a danger, in fact, the supreme danger, he says, and also, the pos, um, and also the possible saving power. And so it's a danger for the reason that you, you just um, laid out. Namely, if you're not listening, then... Uh, and take there not to be anything to listen to, then there are only two possibilities. Uh, either you become lord of the earth or you become totally dominated as a resource. Uh, and neither of, those is, neither of those is good. But the reason it's got a saving possibility in it is that um, we don't make a mistake that every other epoch in the history of being did make. Namely, although they were listening... They took themselves to be listening to something sent by a particular entity, you know, the platonic form of the good or the transcendental, transcendental subjectivity or God or some entity that was the source of all intelligibility. Once we've lost, we've lost both the notion that there's anything given to us and sort of a fortiori, the notion that there's anyone doing the giving or anything doing the giving. Now, it's good to have lost the second thing. And so if we can just regain the first, we'll be a step ahead of, of all the other epochs. Yeah. So in, in all the other epochs, uh, so just to go back to the analogy that you used, uh, so the poetic epochs are nature as we should be being. Yeah. Um, so we are the first time where there's a cleavage. Between, between, so the thing that's being attended to has changed, or that ought to be attended to. Yes. Well, no, and not quite. I mean, it's uh, it's changed in the past, say, from the Platonic form of the good to you know God, you know the the Judeo-Christian God or or something. Uh, so it's changed in the past, but this is a particular kind of change. Um, uh, this is a change from uh, some entity understood as the source of the sending of being. To the sending of being to to core. You know, so, so in the case of the will, right? For example, is he attending to some nature as being created by God or something? Like that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, because I just yeah, you sort of united all these under the example that, uh, or the left hand side of the analogy is that they all um, attend to nature. Yeah, uh, and that's the way we need to attend to being. So yeah, there's a shift between that's the essential shift, but 
it seems like there are many ways to characterize what they've been doing. Yes, good. It's a little hard to understand exactly how it works in the case of the wheelwright because the wheelwright um, uh, is, in, is in a, this funny point in history where he's still got this old-fashioned... I mean, I suspect in the case of the wheelwright, yeah, it probably is some version of the Judeo-Christian God that's left over. Um, uh, yeah, sort of the Anglican God, or something, you know, something like that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah. So I get, but that's not obviously a, a, a feature that Borgman's emphasizing. So is, is the relevant part that? No, no. Go ahead. I'm just. So, so is the relevant part that um, it's perhaps it's not what the craftsman is seeing in the tree in terms of where the tree comes from, for instance, but rather where he's going to, which is relevant. So, um, in the same way that the craftsman takes into a walks around with expectations about what um, you know, when he, I think he's getting a little bit muddled. Uh, but in the same way that the, you know, the craftsman um, sees possibilities in trees for creating wagons, in the same way we should, you know, we should look at our background practices with um, a look towards a way of changing them. Absolutely. Oh boy, this is really, yeah, sort of deep and important. So there, there is, this, what you're pointing to is the temporal structure of the thing. So there's a looking backward and a looking forward. There's, what we need to develop is a sensitivity to the background practices as background practices um, that's not gonna be, a ma I mean, it, it gets complicated. I mean, when you look at a tree, you look. There's the tree that you look at. I mean, a tree. A tree can stand for for the you know for the. So this is going to be a difference. Okay, you're pushing me to make a distinction. So the master wheelwright walks about the sunny woodland hills, uh, you know, responsive to the solicitations of the curve of the tree. And what's it like to be that that guy? Well. He's sort of, he's not just absent-mindedly wandering around. He's in this sort of set, set, prepared to respond to the solicitations of the, of the timber, the solicitations of the tree, in sort of with this background understanding of um, the kinds of solicitations that will be relevant for the world that he lives in for the farmer who lives on the hill, for the, and so on and so forth. So what's it like to be that, that guy? I suppose it's something like this. There you are walking around, sort of set, ready to be struck by something, and all of a sudden, uh, the curve of that particular tree presents itself to you as you know, a tree that would be perfect for the, you know, wagon wheel, you know, Joe's wagon wheel, whatever my, you know, we're running against the limits of my understanding of, you know, farming machinery in the 19th century. So, uh, but whatever. So you can see the experience is something jumps out and grabs you. It, it doesn't grab anyone, you know, it grabs you because of your particular understanding of the village that you live in, the skills that you've got, the season that you're in, the particular the particularities of the tree that you present, and so on and so forth. It, but it jumps out at you. Now, so, but we have to make a distinction because you get to look at it then as something that's for something else. But the way that you relate to the background practices can't be quite like that. 
at least I don't think it can be quite like that. We're, we're in a funny area. I mean, it's not exactly clear how to relate to the background practices, but the point of the background practices is that they don't jump out at you. In fact, they can't jump out at you if they're going to work as background practices. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what kind of sensitivity you need to develop if you're going to have the relation to the background practices that's analogous to the relation that the master craftsman has to the timber. Because I don't think the background practices are going to jump out at you at that, in that way. Or if they do, then they're not going to jump out as background practices. Well, right. So the, 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 the sort of being, for our purposes here, being is the background practice. But isn't that point, though, if they do jump out at you, then they cease to be the background practices, and that's how they change? Well, that's right. If they jump out at you, and I suppose this is a maybe this is the way it works. I mean, we can think of um, uh, what I mean. We can sort of think of, of good. I, I didn't live through any of these, so I don't. I don't quite understand them. But people used to talk about sort of consciousness raising groups in Berkeley in the '60s or something. You can only imagine what they were like, you know. But sort of, they had decided that, um, you know, there was a certain kind of, um, uh, say, sexism that was built into their practices. And together, the men and women had decided that the sexism was built into their practices and they were going to confront it. And so what the, you know, consciousness-raising whatever they were, were, was a matter of trying to look clearly at the way that you have of interacting with one another without even knowing that you're doing it, that sort of manifests this, this thing that you're trying to get rid of. So I suppose that is, like you say, uh, uh, what may happen in that circumstance is that once you've made the background practices clear, um, they no longer operate as background practices, and so you. And so, in virtue of the fact, I actually like the structure of this. In virtue of the fact that you're able to attend to them, they no longer do this sort of scurrilous thing in the background that you're trying to trying to get rid of. Yeah, let's good. Yeah. Extracting kind of a general principle about the background practices, uh, rather than just sort of being the master craftsman that knows exactly what kind of thing that they're looking for mm -hmm. um, in terms of what to create, and kind of helping nature reveal what is supposed to be revealed from the trees um, in the same way. That that seems sort of like the more the the more poetic relationship to nature, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, so that's sort of the relationship to, to being the background practices that we're supposed to have. That's just right. Sort of allowing those to uh, just reveal themselves through us rather than having an explicit awareness of, of them. Yes. Well, you, I, you might be saying what I'm thinking. So let me try to re-say it. And, I, and I've just thought of a good example um, that I can use. Uh, so... Uh, so, um, what we're trying to think about is examples, even if they're examples in a sort of limited domain, where you've got a, a way of relating to the background practices that reveals that 
they can be nurtured and brought out to reveal the world in a different way than it's currently being revealed. So here, this is an example. I wrote about this example, it's a, but it's a very personal example. A teacher of mine, uh, um, Bert, Bert Dreyfus, who's, who's a Heidegger scholar, um, is, I, I think of him as an extraordinary teacher, but he, but he teaches in a very different way than most great teachers teach. Namely, he doesn't um, pontificate. He, and he doesn't, in other words, his seminars are often very confusing. They're very discussion-based. They're very, he's constantly changing his mind. You never know where you are. But there's something very exciting about it. And I couldn't, for the longest time, couldn't figure out what... Um, made it work because he's known as a great teacher. Everyone, you know, thinks of him as a great teacher. And then I realized that he thinks about the practice of teaching differently than most teachers do. And here's the main thing that he thinks about. When he's thinking about teaching, he's not so much thinking about what's going to be good for the students, that, though that happens to come along. He's mostly thinking about how he's going to learn new things. So that giving a seminar isn't a matter of um, pontificating. It's a matter of you know, having an opportunity to learn new things. Well, so now there's a sense in which... Now, of course, it does sometimes happen as a marginal practice, in, even for traditional teachers, that in preparing a lecture or something, they, they learn something new. But he's constantly on the lookout for the possibility of learning new things in a, in a teaching context. That's the way the teaching context shows itself to him. So now those, those possibilities are available in every teaching context. It's just that most teachers aren't thinking about them as possibilities. So I imagine like the, the, cra the master craftsman walking around, you know, attentive to the curve of the timber, he's going through his classes attentive constantly to the possibility of learning something new. And it jumps out at him. And that's what's exciting. When it jumps out at him, you get a new organization of the practices. Students play a different role in the context of the seminar than they do traditionally. The teacher plays a different role in the context of the seminar than he does traditionally. And you get this whole new organization of the practices. Sometimes it's incredibly messy and confusing and you don't know what's going to happen. But sometimes it organizes itself in, in this wonderful new way. And all of a sudden there's a whole new way of understanding not just the material that you're doing, thinking about, but what it is to play the role of student, what it is to play the role of teacher, what it is for a seminar to be used in the way that it's being used in a university, and so on and so forth. So I imagine, that's a, a local case, but I imagine that's a, a kind of case where if you're sensitive to practices that are marginally available in the culture anyway, but you're sensitive to them in this sort of prioritizing way so that you can organize your own activities around them. That will allow the practices to gather differently and if there's enough social context, other peoples will, allow, will be able to understand themselves differently in that context and you'll get a new organization of the practices and you'll get a new understanding of what everyone's up to. This is, so this is an example of a very local domain, but you can imagine it in you know, the domain of what it is to be a human being. And maybe that's what, you know, maybe that's what, Christ, you know, the, the, what Christ did when he went around finding this marginal practice 
of, say, you know, loving your neighbor or something, which was there. It's there in the Old Testament, but it's there as a marginal practice. It's, um, you know, it's one of the one of the Ten Commandments is not to commit adultery, right? I mean, so that's you know, there is a notion of personal responsibility and of, of a certain sort, but it, but it's not. It's not the it's not the central thing around which you organize all the practices and maybe he came along and showed a way of living a life that was organized with that as the central as the central practice and then you get a new gathering of the practices a new mode of understanding new ways of being are disclosed and uh, new roles are possible I think that's the picture that Heidegger has and the idea is that you can't be you can't live up to your essence as a human being unless you understand the relation in which you stand to revealing or to being or to modes of revealing, which he thinks amounts to the background practices. And the relation in which you stand to those things is the relation of being, sens being capable of being sensitive to them, listening to and hearing them, uh, and also the relation of being able to preserve them as practices and also the relation of being able to initiate possible reorganization, reorganizations of them. I think that's, that's the... Yeah, yeah, Adam. <laughs> I had a question about this sort of exciting new possibility for a new understanding of being from our technological work. Yeah. So, um, like I, I agree. It's, it's it's all very exciting that we can have this new possibility. New possibility that it's not an object that gives it to us, and that's exciting. Until I hear, maybe you say it's background practice. Mm. I mean, maybe it it doesn't strike me like background practices. Maybe um, seem like cultural practices or something like as bad as etiquette. How are we <laughs> to ground meaning on something like etiquette? Uh -huh. I'm not. I'm not exactly seeing that. So it seems to be yeah. sort of flying in the face of what people have thought. Maybe in a good way, but what meaning is? How are we grounding it? Okay. Good. Good. So let me let me see if I can feel the force of it. You're worried about the possibility that background practices are just trivializing. That it's too trivial a thing to um, uh, to be the source of intelligibility. That. Um, I mean, the examples we've given are, you know, things like, I don't know, have we given examples like this? You, you put the salad fork on the left or something. I don't know. So, and, may, and, you know, everyone who's brought up appropriately, you know, knows that or does it automatically or something like that. So that, um, so what I need to do is to convince you that the background practices are much more pervasive than mere practices of social etiquette. It's not, we're not in the domain of, of mismanners. We're in some much deeper uh, domain where everything uh, that has anything to do with the way that we interact with others, with the way that we interact with things, with the way that we organize ourselves socially, with the kinds of projects that seem reasonable to pursue to us, everything that has anything to do with anything that's in any way meaningful is um, uh, comes to be intelligible in the way that it is 
because of practices that we're brought up into that we're inculcated into that we're constantly sensitive to without even recognizing that we are. So it's true that some examples are things like, you know, how close you stand to someone when you've got a cold. That's, that's, those are some examples. But there are other kinds of examples that have to do with, for instance, the fact that um, the fact that it wouldn't make, it doesn't make sense to us to aspire to live the life of a saint. I mean, it doesn't make sense to us in the way that it might have made sense to, to someone living in the Judeo-Christian era. So, and, it, and the reason it doesn't make sense to us is why. Well, it's because everything that we take for granted about what it is to be a human being is divorced from the background practices that characterized the mode of life in the medieval era. So, so it's so what I need. I don't know if I'm ha if I'm helping, but the idea is supposed to be that the background practices are so pervasive and they're so hidden from us that the kinds of examples that readily come to mind are relatively trivial ones, but we can understand their, the force of the background uh, um, practices if we understand the pervasive effect that they have, namely that they make certain modes of existence seem like ones to which we can aspire, and they rule out of court a whole range of others that were eminently available to people living in different, in different epochs in the history of the West. Does that help at all? A little bit. Okay. Um, Anton, did you? Someone over here had a question? No. Okay. Um, oh yeah. Wait, this is in which ushering in a new understanding of being isn't only going to just affect your background practices; that it should affect all of your practices. Um, and so, in that sense, it would be more radical than, than I think you were about. Um, I mean, do you see? Do you see what I mean by that? That it's not just the background practices that would change. Once we usher in a new state of being, it would be everything as, as we go. So I, I don't think that you have to say that the background practices in and of themselves are super important and that's all that we're going to change. I think that they are particularly indicative of, of, of... Maybe that they point to something much deeper. Yeah, that too. And that, that once you get an understanding of them, that's what enables you to transform your understanding of being. But then once you do do that, then it's supposed to be everything at stake, I think. I mean, everything is at stake. Maybe I can try to um, get at this issue um, by asking a different question. And I think, because there's, there's, there's a lot more to talk about. But So, um, so what I want to talk about, I think, is related to, to your question. So keep it in mind. Um, as we talk about this. I, unless there are other questions at this point, can I go on to the next? Okay. Let, let me, so I'm going to skip a bunch of things, but I, I'm going to go on to a question that I thought that confused me for a while. And in working through the answer, I want to try to work through the answer with you. And in working through it, we might get a sense of how pervasive the background practices are. Um, so, Heidegger makes a big deal in a bunch of different places in this essay about the fact that the essence of technology is nothing technological. 
He says that over and over. Uh, he says it on uh, page four, for instance. Um, uh, at the top, he says, technology is not equivalent to the essence of technology. When we're seeing... When we're seeking the essence of, and, and, and I think he thinks this is true about any kind of essence claim. When we're seeking the essence of tree, we have to become aware that that which pervades every tree as tree is not itself a tree that can be encountered among all the other trees. So the idea is, look, it's an essence claim. If you wanted to find the essence of tree, you wouldn't go looking in the forest. You know, you would try to figure out what it, you might, I mean, depends on what you mean by essence, but you wouldn't expect to find it the way you'd find any other tree. The essence of tree isn't that tree or that tree or that tree or that tree. So too, the essence of technology is by no means anything technological. Um, wh why, so I wondered, why does he keep making this claim? Why does he care about it? Um, and... I think I sort of understand why he cares about it. Here's, here's where it starts to play its initial role, just continuing on from, from where I just stopped. So, so since the essence of technology is by no means anything technologi technological, we shall never experience our relationship to the essence of technology so long as we merely conceive and push forward the technological, put up with it or evade it. Everywhere we remain unfree and chained to technology, whether we passionately affirm or deny it. But we're delivered over to it in the worst possible way when we regard it, uh, uh, the essence of technology, as something neutral. For this conception of it, to which today we particularly like to do homage, makes us utterly blind to the essence of technology. Sorry. We're delivered over to it in the worst possible way when we regard it, technology, as something neutral. For this conception of technology makes us utterly blind to the essence of technology. Okay. Why does he care about this? I think he cares about this because he's interested in the question what our relationship to the essence of technology is. So that was the second sentence of the second paragraph. We shall never experience our relationship to the essence of technology so long as we're trying to put ourselves in some relation to technology. Okay, so that indicates that what we're trying to do in this essay is, well, figure out something about the essence of technology and something about our relation to it. So this is right at the very beginning of the, of the essay. He must be telling us something about what the purpose of the essay is. He wants to help us understand what our relationship to the essence of technology is. Does anyone know what his name for the essence of technology is? Framing. And framing is his name for it. Exactly, right. So <laughs> it was a trick question. I was just trying to see if anyone's paying attention. Good. So and framing, Gestell, is, the name for his, is, his, is his name for the essence of technology. And what characterizes and framing? What, what, what does he say about it? Sorry? Ah, very important that it's okay. Very important that it's not bringing forth. Jeff, I'll just write these on the board so that we have it. This is the thing that I skipped, but so I get to go back and do it. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly.
Okay, so this is the contrast. In the poetic mode of revealing, we find ourselves bringing forth, nurturing, uh, and in the current technological age, um, we find uh, something is challenged forth. So let's just find the relevant passage. Anyone know? I know where it is. Oh, 19. That's earlier than I thought it would be. Let's see. Yeah, responding to the call. Yep. So that, that's certainly one of the places. So he says on 19, um, we now name that challenging claim which gathers man thither to order the self-revealing as standing reserve, gestel, and framing. Okay. So it's a challenging claim that gathers man thither to order the self-revealing as standing reserve. So it's important that the mode of revealing that characterizes the contemporary technological age is a challenging claim that gathers us to uh, order things as resources. Standing reserve is the ger this German word bestand, which I like to translate uh, resources. So whenever I say resources, that's tr standing reserve here. Um, a little bit further on, he characterizes um, this challenging fourth. So I thought I was going to find it on 24. Just a quick question before that. Yeah. On page 18, when Heidegger asks who accomplishes the challenging setting upon through which what we call the real is revealed as standing reserve. Yeah. Setting upon, does he mean challenging, challenging setting upon as challenging fourth? Like, what is the setting upon doing in that sense? <laughs> that's the Stellen. Yeah, that's the Stellen. So, um, so the idea is that um, uh, there's a the 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 metaphor is a metaphor of the the setting upon is the idea that you're ordering things that you're placing a certain kind of structure on them. That's the that's the Stell part. That's the the setting upon part. So your the idea is that you're you're placing things in a certain order, but it's not just that you're doing that. It's that you um, are responding to the challenge to do that. That he thinks that it's part of uh, everyone's experience that uh, we are are challenged and are responding to the challenge to set things into a particular order um, as resources that can be used in the most efficient in the most efficient way. So he's, he's so okay, so that's the setting upon. It's the ordering part. It's the it's the setting them into a particular into a particular structure. Uh, so the, there are two so there are two parts. There are a bunch of parts to it. But there's the challenging part. And then and then there's the structuring ordering part. The challenging part is the interesting one. So, and framing challenges us. So, uh, the, it's a challenging claim, and framing is a challenging claim which gathers man to order the self-revealing as standing reserve. It's a, we, he thinks, experience ourselves as challenged to set things into order and to, um, 
and to organize them in the most efficient way. The, he thinks that this is we, that we're already in the midst of this uh, sense that it's what it's what needs to be done. So he says on 24, for instance. Um, And on the um, on the left, so just below the top sentence. So just you, you the thing that we read on 18 started off uh, with the claim that it's obviously man who accomplishes the challenging setting forth. And here he says again, we ask, does this revealing happen somewhere beyond all human doing? No, but neither does it happen exclusively in man or decisively through man. It's not a matter of our will that we're challenged forth. How could it be, actually? Because the point is that being challenged forth is um, having something from outside of you challenge you to act in a certain way. The idea is that we're, we are responsive to this challenge without ever recognizing it as a challenge. So we find ourselves in the midst of it. He says, and framing is the gathering together that belongs to that setting upon, which sets upon man, and puts him in a position to reveal the real in the mode of ordering as standing reserve. So, uh, as the one who is challenged forth in this way, man stands within the essential realm of enframing. So we we are already we already experience ourselves as challenged to relate to objects in this way of bringing them out in the most efficient, most resourceful way possible. Man can never take up a relationship to it, to enframing, only subsequently. Well, now we're in the relationship business, right? Remember on page four we said we're trying to figure out how to experience our relationship to the essence of technology. Well, how are you supposed to do it? Well, you can never take up a relationship to enframing, to the essence of technology, only subsequently. Why not? Well, because it's not some entity that you could just stand in some relationship to. It's a background set of cultural practices that you're already in the midst of in virtue of having been brought up in the way that you were. So you've already, you've all, the way to say it, using this sort of funny Heidegger jargon, you've always already got a relationship to it. You find yourself in the midst of it. And he can never take a... Um, thus the question as to how we are, are to arrive at a relationship to the essence of technology, that question we asked back on page four, asked in this way, always comes too late. Why too late? Well, because you can't establish a relationship or arrive at a relationship. You've already got one. You're in the midst of it. You're in the midst of these background practices. But never too late comes the question as to whether we actually experience ourselves as the ones whose activities everywhere, public and private, are challenged forth by enframing. Um, above all, never too late comes the question as to whether and how we actually admit ourselves into that wherein enframing itself comes to presence. In other words, we already find ourselves challenged forth to order things in the most efficient way possible. That's just what it is to live in the current technological age in the West. 
That's the background understanding of being into which we're all brought up. It characterizes the kinds of projects that we understand as reasonable projects to pursue. It characterizes the kind, it's that in virtue of that that we understand the aspirations that make sense. It's in virtue of that that we understand what it is to be, in his earlier example, an airplane or a teacup or a anything, anything as anything is understandable already um, in terms of the, this challenge to order things in the most efficient way possible. So it's very pervasive. It's complete, in fact. It's so complete that it's totalizing. Uh, and that's actually why it's so dangerous. So every mode of revealing is a danger. He says every mode of revealing is um, uh, a danger, danger as such, right? Because it hides... Um, it hides itself. It hides that it's a mode of revealing. But the contemporary mode of revealing is the supreme danger because, as we were saying earlier, it hides that there's any revealing going on at all. Right? And that's not something that's ever happened in, in, the, in the history of the West. Um, so let me just make this one distinction and then, and then we'll stop. I don't know if I've set it up well enough. But I, but I think we can say this much. We are already in the midst of and sensitive to a set of background practices that challenge us to uh, order, to understand everything as orderable um, and... If, and um, and uh, and um, what's what's the right way to say it? Sort of to be made if, to be made in the most efficient way possible. We're already in the midst of that. We're already insofar as we're brought up in the culture, we're already responding to that. That's something that we can't that we can't uh, that, that we can't get out of in virtue of the fact that we're brought up in the culture. But one thing we can do is instead of just responding to the challenge to order everything in the most efficient way possible. We can hear it as a challenge. And this is a this is a this is a, a move. So I have to italicize something that he doesn't italicize. But if you look on let me see if I can find it. Where's the thing where I say my italics? Um, there's an as that's really important. My italics, here it is. Uh, page 25. So, uh, page 25, I'm going to do a couple things. At the top, I think maybe we read this last time, Always the unconcealment of that which is goes upon a way of revealing. Um, there's always a background understanding of being that says, always the destining of revealing holds complete sway over man. We didn't talk about destining in history, but that has to do with the way the background practices uh, are continually organizing and reorganizing themselves. And at this point in history, they've reorganized themselves and articulated themselves in such a way that it's become 
sort of clearer and clearer that uh, the way to understand what anything is at all is as is in terms of its efficient orderability. But that destiny is never a fate that compels for a man becomes truly free only insofar as he belongs to the realm of destiny and so becomes one who listens and hears and what, not one who is simply constrained to obey. So the listening and hearing, we're lis- what we're supposed to be listening and hearing, listening to and hearing is the challenge to order things in the most efficient way possible. And then skipping down to the bottom, he says, but when we consider the essence of technology rather than technology itself, when we consider and framing as a mode of revealing that challenges us to order things in the most efficient way possible as resources, then we experience and framing as a destining of revealing. So there's a difference between its being the background practices that challenge us and to, and to which we're always already sensitive and that organizes the way we understand anything as anything at all on the one hand, and our understanding it as that on the other. Understanding it as that allows you to experience the challenge to order things as a challenge and when you can understand that as a challenge you can bring it into question. You can ask whether it's appropriate to be challenged to do other things with things. You can look into history and be open to the possibility that when people weren't challenged to order things in the way they are, maybe they were getting something different out of them that's respectable and that we ought to be interested in, like the poetic relation to nature, maybe, or whatever. Um, Once you understand it as a destining of revealing, then rather than simply responding to the challenge that it sets, then we'll have a free relationship to technology, which is what he's trying to set us up for in this essay. A relationship that will allow us to understand the essence of technology and framing as one mode of revealing among others, a mode of revealing that's sent to us but not sent from any entity, uh, and that will allow us to bring to um, help to bring forth or nurture new modes of revealing uh, that will give us new ways of new ways of mattering and new ways of understanding what we're up to. That's, I think, supposed to be the um, the upshot of this, or it's supposed to lay the groundwork for that upshot. Um, next next week, when we read the turning, I think it'll become a little bit clearer um, how this safe uh, how this saving possibility works. Uh, we've been sort of. Um, uh, so running over it uh, lightly, and hopefully we'll be able to dig in a little bit more deeply next time. Okay, that's a terrific. See you guys next time. Thanks for your questions. This was good.